Hello and welcome to this week's Stats Bomb podcast, which appears to be weekly at the moment. Uh, we'll see how that holds up. But um, I'm James York, and I'm joined by Ted Knutson. Hello, Mr. Knutson. How are we doing? I'm awake. I've had, I think, a little bit of coffee, and we are answering user questions. Yep, we're doing questions today because um, well, it's fun. People always ask lots of questions, and uh, we thought we'd get stuck into a few. And I've ca- I categorised them. I actually got organised on this. So we have basic stroke personal opinion, football, <laughs> uh, what else is there? Metric stroke stats, set pieces. Well, we're not going to answer any of those ones. There are only a couple. And research questions, which... Uh, yes. So you guys sent so many questions this time that, that James actually decided to, to get systemic about this, which is very odd. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, thanks, James. And also... Just to you know, tell you guys, tell your friends. Look, we're weekly. You guys are encouraging us. This is great, but you know, keep pushing us out there. Uh, you know, we we're not at a hundred thousand listeners uh, a week yet, and so you know, until we are, keep telling your friends how much you enjoy uh, occasionally pastor us oh. to do podcasts. I'm on holiday next week, Ted. Um, we might not be <laughs> weekly next week, but we might be. We'll think about it. Who knows? <laughs> we're getting there. We're just bear with us, all right? <laughs> we're having a go we're doing baby steps yeah. alright so let's start with so James how did you come up with the name Stats Bomb um, yeah it wasn't that was that was when I was a mere twinkle in Stats Bomb's eye I wasn't nothing do me that was the first question how did you come up with the name Stats Bomb Ted it's funny because like all these questions are mostly ones that you can answer except for that one so I figured I'd ask you <laughs> no, I think you, they're all they're all targeted at you, but that's that's fine. Um, I can't remember. And there was there was some argument about the how the format. It's it's one word it, as far as I'm concerned with the, the stats and the capital and the bomb both capitalised. Yeah, that's, that's how I see it. But how did you that come is... up with it, Ted? What's the idea? <sighs> so, it, yes, as with most things in life, and especially stuff you see on the site, like it was way more work than people would ever notice or see. As fascinating thing, right? Um, so I knew I wanted to, to put together the site, and um, I didn't need anybody else's help to, to kind of go looking around for a name that made sense. Um, and this is 2013, and so like when you think about it, the probably the best recent sports site in in the world is is a site called formerly called Grantland, G R A N T L A N D. And it was like a nothing name that was actually based off of this this former writer who had the first name Grantland, which you've never heard of. Um, and, and Simmons talked about it. And he's like, look, it was something that people could remember. It was short. The the URL was available. And that was kind of where we ended up with this. Like, I had a couple of names that I really liked. Um, Ooh, tell, one, tell us what. No. What, like, world, what world could we be living in now? It, it, could, it could be like a, a future one. But, like, one of those was, like, 4,000 euros in order to get the URL. And I was like, that's nonsense. I don't even know what's going to happen with this silly blog. I'm not paying 4,000 euros. That's insane. So, yeah, we paid, like, you know, no price or whatever the base is. Um, and, you know, stats kind of worked, you know, sports, something smart, something analytical, we were looking for it. And then, you know, bomb is there. And, and bomb, I don't know, like, it, it kind of had a little bit of a ring. Like, everybody remembers the name, so, like, it worked out fine. But it's just amazing how much criticism you get for names for anything, like, whether it's a metric or whatever. And Simon Gleave is usually the person who leads this type of thing, because for whatever reason, the guy who works for Grace Note and formerly Infostrata, uh, 
apparently thinks that naming is easy. I'm not sure if that's true or not. But, you know, people like names or, or like to argue about names. Some people just like to argue. We used to have a yeah. tagline, didn't we? Didn't it? it was related to the, the kind of explosion concept. Blowing up everything you know about sports. Yeah. I, I don't think the tagline existed, but, yeah. Don't don't go back to our, our early branding phases and uh, <laughs> think they were anything other than cheap. <laughs> no, and, and this is a fair point, is it? Like you know, if you were, if you were forming a business, you probably wouldn't include bombs in it, like in the name straight away. But it wasn't a business then; it was a it was a blog and a thing. It was a blog. So from here on in, not. we are Canute and Corp. And that's <laughs> well, that's that's much easier to say. No one ever ever has a problem with Knutson. <laughs> it can't go wrong. Anyway, right. So that's that question done. That's that's where it came from. Ted Ted's mind is the answer. Um, no, I, actually, our COO as well talked to talked to her at the time. Like it's like, hey, do you have any ideas on this? Because you actually you know have worked in this space. And yeah, there were, there were probably like ten of them, only five of which I vaguely liked, and ended up at this. Sorry. So there's a weird question to start off the the Stats Bomb podcast with, but there you go. Some some historic information there. Some people like these kind of things, so, you know. Someone asked a question. We've got questions to answer. Right. Anyway. It makes us appear like we're real people as opposed to the robots that we actually are. And this is we got another real people question, so we'll get rattle through that before we get to the, <laughs> the serious stuff. So when you sit down, Ted, to watch. A live game on television on a Saturday or a Sunday. What are you paying attention to? Well, your answer is the same as mine. <laughs> I'm trying to think what my answer is. <laughs> it was Twitter, right? Oh yeah, that was it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, let's fire up some tweets. Here we go. Uh, yeah, um, a real answer that is also Twitter. Um, I don't know. I can't. I, it, I think. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite a, a casual watcher. I think I'm probably a little bit more switched on to the idea that, like, I might potentially have to write about teams, like, that something's happened over the years. So just kind of, like, absorbing what's going on and, you know, keeping an eye on players. And I, I, I'm not sitting there taking notes, though, or, or like, you know, look, looking to see if the half space is filled up, out or whatever. That's that's not how I see the world. But My, you know. my notes end up on Twitter. So, like, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I don't... Hmm. I've done this professionally plenty of times, and like my professional hat is very different than the hat that I sit on the couch with, and and I, it needs to be that way because I, I still need to enjoy football, I, and I do actually. I'm, my wife is like, "Oh God, it's football season again." It's like, "Yes, <laughs> it's I'm, I'm really enjoying season. watching it." Like watching Brentford last night versus Villa, like that was a great game. Mm. Uh, result wasn't quite what I was hoping for, but nevertheless, like it was really enjoyable to watch. So when I watch things. Um, you know, just sort of sitting around and, and probably have a beer, like I'm flagging up little things in my head or, or stuff that I find interesting. When I watch things, like I took my son to see um, City versus or Leicester versus City last year, uh, knowing that it might be like a, a record-setting season um, and that you know tickets late in the season might be hard to catch. Um, so I went with Kieran to to watch that, and like I really watched how they build up. And I kind of put my my opposition scouting hat on and was breaking down what the build up looked like, what they were doing, uh, even in the final third, while trying to watch it live, which is which is quite difficult. But you know, it was fun. Um, so like, you know, I've I've got different levels of attention that I I do. Like one of them is me just sort of watching the game and making silly statements on Twitter and listening to everybody else's. And I think that's actually natural for everybody. Yeah. But then the other one is like when you're doing stuff professionally, scouting a player, scouting a team, whatever, is a very different level of attention, and you're paying different, yeah, you know, you're paying attention to different stuff. Yeah, no, that's very true. Like when you actually like, <laughs> let's watch a single player and see what he does, and you know. 
<laughs> keep your eye on him completely rather than rather than as a whole. I think there's there's something to be said about like not you know in a live game or I I, I watched some of the World Cup on the um on the tactics cam which was quite interesting. No commentary, just watching the tactics cam and just like just seeing how shapes move around and seeing how how uh, you know teams teams kind of organise themselves and stuff from that kind of slightly detached view, which is you know it's it's a different way of looking at it. And obviously yeah, if you're more like inclined towards the tactical side of things and that kind of analysis, then you know these that that kind of way of looking at a match is probably um, best served in that kind of um, in entire kind of manner. But yeah, I mean, if you, if you're just watching, you know, Chelsea versus Arsenal on on, on the TV, then you know, in the first instance, you want to be entertained. Yeah, that's why, presumably, why you're watching it. Like <laughs> yeah. we also, the, the thing that people seem to forget, we kind of straddle this unusually more so than than most other people in the space, is that we do this for work too, right? And yeah. You still like football? Like I've I've burned out on on some things in the past. Like just done them too much and can't really enjoy them in in your private life. But like you know, football is certainly something that that I feel I want to maintain an enjoyment of for the long term. And you can come back to it, I guess. But a lot of the questions that people ask us also, um, you know, we can't answer those. Or you know, this is a it's, it's a, plenty of these things we. We are both media, and we have things on the site that are media, and some of them are fun and entertaining, and this is always entertaining for us. I don't know about for you guys, um, the listeners, but <clears throat> we also do all of this stuff professionally. Um, not not the podcast, but like you know, we write for customers, and we do recruitment work, and we do analysis work, and and so like we have to be really careful. Um, there are plenty of guys out there who who are stuck in dead end jobs that would love to be able to tell you the the best young center backs in in all the other leagues. But for us, like that's a pretty significant consulting engagement. And also, people evaluate our public work too, like as if it's our private work. And so you have to be like really careful about what you put out there because it has to just be good. Otherwise, they'll downgrade you. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a good yeah. point about um. <laughs> it's a good point about like you know the fact that you do do spend time working on um working on like football projects and stuff and yeah i think you know it does mean that you try and draw a line at, at times you know in your private life where you actually do want to kind of you know do, do something different but that said you know i'm, I'm still going to watch you know as many games as i can sneak around my wife on a weekend if i if i can <laughs> and <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it's fun right and it's, it's still football so you don't have to watch it intensely you just you just watch uh, I enjoyed the three weeks I had this summer that were really far away from football itself because there was almost nothing going on. Uh, didn't have to pay any attention to, to preseason. It was in a time zone that like Europe was basically done with their day by the time that that I woke up, and that was actually really cool. And I came came back and felt refreshed, which is nice. Um, and the World Cup was great too. So like you got a whole bunch at once, and then you're like, all right, now just let me step away from everything else. And it was it was lovely. So right. yeah, that's moving all, on. Right, yeah, that's all the that's all the boring personal stuff. Out exactly. Of the way. <laughs> uh, well, actually, this one says very interested in your thoughts. So, it's personal. <laughs> They're asking on, us <laughs> on Conte playing further forward. I know it's a small sample, but I thought Sari might try a four-two-three-one because Jorginho Conte seems ideal. Instead, he's he's moved Conte up. And then, what's the best option for Chelsea's third midfield spot? Assuming that you've got Jorginho Conte, uh, you've got Kovacic, RLC, Barkley, Sesk, Drinkwater. Except don't bother with drink water. That's what that's what the <laughs> other person said, not me. So poor drink water. How, um, how do you feel about this, James? 
Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it is it is interesting. It's like one of these kind of like early things that's occurred in in the in the league. Uh, Conte is no longer the all dominating defensive midfielder because he's playing kind of box to box now, and he seems to be doing okay. I, I few well, a few people I've seen seem to think this is good and he can he can succeed in this. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure if his 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 um his passing like kind of higher up the pitch will kind of pass muster, but then. It probably doesn't need to. He's probably just that energetic that he can he can play this role, and you know you can kind of cover for it elsewhere. Um, he's, he's an excellent player. There's no denying it. So, you know, to say that it's it's an, you know doesn't suit him at all would be a little bit over the top. Um, this bothers me a little bit uh, because of the extreme outlier nature of this, and <clears throat> I'm going to talk about stats a little bit regarding football. Um, Conte is the best defensive midfielder that we've seen at this position, especially destructive in ages, right? Like, just ages and ages. It's, it's hard to remember somebody that did this. Mascherano, probably. And his passing is fine, but it's really weird to, to like, take that guy who is the best at doing this thing and then move him out of that role. And I, I don't know. It might be that because of the, the natural sort of regista-like qualities of Jorginho and deep-lying playmakers, and that's what Sarri needs... But it just feels like you're taking the dude that is amazing at this one particular skill set, probably pretty good at other ones, and shifting him out of that. Like I'm not sure. Well, see, yeah, seeing seeing Arsenal create uh, chance after chance in the centre of the box <laughs> last week as well makes you think. Well, maybe you do need a little more cover there. <laughs> maybe maybe this maybe some kind of four-two-three-one would would. I mean, with the, with this personnel, you. You you would kind of think yeah I'll find a way to put Jorginho and Kante there and then pl- chuck a load of flair out of it but you know Sarri seems to be committed to his system and um, who's who's the third guy I mean he seems to have settled on Kante which which is fine uh, who's the third guy I mean Kovacic is excellent but maybe maybe a bit defensively minded to go in with those three. So that didn't really happen before though. So the the funky part about Kovacic is that like he's an amazing ball mover when he was younger. Uh to the, to the extent that he looked like you know a midfield Eden Hazard, somebody that really gets the ball up the pitch, especially with the ball at his feet. Um RLC's a bit that way too. So like Ruben Loftus cheek. Um so like both of those they can be attackers. Sesk is the best attacking passer, bar Mesut Ozil, that has existed in in the Premier League for X think, amount of time. Do you think he's probably just backing up Jorginho now? Is, he, is that yeah. going to be his role? He's, he's literally he'll use him if Jorginho's not there. Maybe. Well, he's also the unlock. So, like, you know, you put him in late in the game, and and he can help unlock defenses. Like, he doesn't have to run around as much. He comes in with fresh legs when everybody's a little bit tired. It's a little bit about managing Sesk. Um, David Silva and, and Kevin De Bruyne are also great, by the way. But like, you know, if we're if we're doing sort of like weight of, of history, like the Suskin and Ozil are, are at the top of that list um, with almost nobody else around them at the moment. Um, so well, I I think the right answer is probably Kovacic, but you know Barkley's getting playing time. Yeah, and he's a runner, isn't he? So like, you know, you've got you've got a ball carrier then, haven't you? A little bit. So I mean, it depends how he wants to kind of balance the. I think. Uh, the, what what I like about Chelsea's options here is they've got different types of player, literally. Yeah. Although it feels like uh, Sarri's more interested in just like creating one system and one way of playing, but they really have got 
you know, really interesting options across their midfield and could, you know, you could you can endless endless permutations. I think I, I agree with our question asker. Danny Drinkwater might struggle for minutes this season, but um, that's kind of understandable when they've bought yet. I don't know. We bought three more mid. Yeah, three of those players have been bought since he arrived at the club. So, well, it's it's like a good it's a good segue to talk about how the fact that the Premier League's window is closed, but the outgoings are not, and there are still clubs out there who really, really want to shift some guys, whether it's into Europe or and just to cover payroll, if nothing else, whether it's into Europe or in the Championship or whatever. Like Yannick Bellassi, who was big money before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he got injured, but even so, he's got thirty million quid. And what's, where's he gone now? Is he gone to Middlesbrough? Is it on loan? Yeah, he's he's gone down into the Championship, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean they should be pretty good in that league. <laughs> it's pretty fun. And he won't be the only one. So, like, you know, where does Drinkwater go? Where does this guy go? Where does that guy go? It is. Uh, it's a big question. And you can't. Yeah, you can't. You'd be surprised if. I mean, not <laughs> not to be presumptuous, but you're surprised if. Uh, like that many English players went went abroad went abroad on the, in this kind of setup. So yeah, you could we could have a uh, a few interesting players landing in the championship like Balassi, and uh, we'll see where we go there. Well, I think that the director of football job got suddenly like much harder because everybody chose to move the <laughs> the transfer deadline, and it created weird situations that that haven't existed before. And we'll see if like there's a European wide transfer. Um, deadline that, that matches up or whatever coming soon. I think they've kind of talked about wanting to align them, but it's a yeah. Every, every year's a little bit different. Um, Chelsea right now have a moderately big squad with some funky parts. Some other clubs like a West Ham or an Everton have really big squads, and and they'll be busy even in the in the next week or so. Yeah, Everton's huge, absolutely huge. Right. Um. So, how many points do Brentford win the league by, Ted? <laughs> this is funny. It comes off the back of me. After I think Brentford won something four 0 like, hey, are Brentford favourites in the, in the championship to to be promoted yet? Did people take that seriously? Are you uh, taking well, it seriously? No, you're, that's you're the question. It seriously, but you know that's the danger with Germans. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the guy goal impact like, seemed to take it seriously, and I was like, well, this is a bit of a joke, but it's only a bit of a joke actually. So what happened in the championship last year was that the three best teams got promoted, um, but like. Probably the fourth best team was Brentford. Now, they didn't finish in the playoffs, and part of that was off the back of a catastrophic first set of, of matches. And Brentford often go through this. But as the season went on, like they seem to get better and better. They take a lot of shots. Their, their young talent is continuing to improve. And uh, and their defense seems to be, their press seems to be better than it's ever been. Uh, slick passing kind of is something that they do often, but they've got... Their front line is, is really, really excellent, um, especially for, for this league. So the question is now, you know, looking at Stoke struggling a bit, um, Leeds coming on is, is interesting. Villa are messy. Um, and so it's it's not entirely a joke to say that Brentford might be one of the favorites, certainly to get into the playoffs, but but possibly to get promoted. Um I'm not going to be like you know how many points they win in the league by. They're not they're not wolves from last year, I don't think. But yeah, you know, they 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 should certainly be up there, and it's exciting. Like yeah, I've still recruited a, a bunch of the guys that are on that squad, and, and we advised on some of the ones that that um, you know are still there, or some that left quickly. Like John Egan scored a goal, I think, last weekend for Sheffield United already. Uh, he was one guy that we recruited, so it's, it's good to see them 
you know, you know, you like this type of team that that sort of marches to their own their own beat. Yeah. And uh, their recruitment certainly is different from everybody else. So it's and they're fun to watch. Like they were against Villa last night. They the draw at the death uh, was brutal because they were up two one. But that was a great game to watch. And that Villa team's good too. Yeah, I mean, this is it. You know, I know you've got a soft spot for Brentford. Obviously, you spent time there, and um, you know, it it is the fact that the fact that people forget they're still a very small club in the scale scale of things. Especially when you've got we have got like sleeping giants like Leeds and stuff down there. You know, so if they, if they their record over the past few years has been, has been excellent, considering you know the you know the amount of money they have to to spend. And yeah, like like you say that you know they, they only need they only need a small uptick one one year, and they they could they could accidentally end up in the Premier League. It's not impossible by any stretch. <laughs> well, we've talked about this before. How when many teams have to sell players, like you then start to see if they're smart or not, because can they replicate like a good a good crop of transfers and and often that ends up not being the case so like you either point to you know something happened in the personnel or the process changed or they just got lucky and and getting lucky is normal that's fine like sometimes it's a bit of all of the above uh for Brentford they sell players every year and they make a transfer profit every year like usually a significant one um and then they just reload and they reload with a little more money and they get a little bit better and they learn and and yeah, they're one of the best teams in the world at recruiting right now. Not that you'd ever see that, um, but but it's true. Uh, but yeah, I mean these these are the uh, the challenges. I mean we we can we'll skip a question and come back to one because I think this is related. Um, <coughs> one question we got here is: Is Michael Edwards really this good, or is Klopp just making him good? A la Zork. Sure. And um, again, it's about I think. I think the the essence of what, why Liverpool are doing well is just that they, it feels like. I mean, you can only estimate from the outside that they've just joined up their processes and, yeah. like, you know, try to you know, look for the edges. They've, you know, they obviously used stats in some way to to review their players in their uh, transfer process. And the thing is, it just makes sense to do this. You know, if if you're and while for Liverpool, uh, possibly the market for looking for the world's best player or some of the world's best players is a little more straightforward than it is down the leagues. You know that same kind of philosophy of of just just doing everything you can to like make sure that um, make sure that you're you're picking the right players and you know making more hits than not is the right way to go. Obviously, like you say, Brentford are very good at it, but but it's more subtle and it's more. Um, you know they're not buying headline players, so you know they have to do work in a slightly different way than probably Liverpool do. Well, yeah, exactly. They have to fish more. So what 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 Liverpool do, and actually, like this kind of doesn't give Zork enough credit because like Zork's group was good under Tuchel too. It was when when they had to get to like the third or the fourth manager, sort of somewhat unexpectedly, that things started to to break down a bit. Um, but what what Liverpool do is they use, or at least from my perspective, I don't know this for, for a fact, but from my perspective, they use their data and their scouting to find the best players that fit what Klopp wants, right? And Klopp's, Klopp's like, I need this, and I need this, and I need this. My system demands this. And they're like, great, cool. We've got all this information. We understand how to translate that into, into stats and data, and also the scouts know what to look for, and then we go out into the world and we find these guys, and then we come back and we say, all right, these are the guys that we think you know fit the the requirements. These are our rankings. You know, which ones do you like? And then he picks them, right? And that's you know keeps the coach involved. Like that process matters. You want the coach to be involved both in the the initial design of telling you what you need and in the final design of, of sort of like choosing which ones you think are the best because you know 
the translation isn't perfect. Um, and so that's what, what Liverpool seem to be doing very, very well. And they spend a whole bunch of money to find those players. And sometimes they wait. Like Sometimes they wait a year in order to get those best players that make the most sense in. But, man, that process seems to really be humming. And, and the outputs of it, you know, whether it's Van Dyke that seems to have solidified the defense, whether it's Navi Keita, uh, whether it's uh, Allison at, at the goalkeeper, like they seem to be really good at this. And you know, Dortmund for years kind of had this combined process that, that looked really sharp, too. They would find young players, and then they would sell those off for big profit. Um, and then they could spend a little more. And their, their scouting uh, like went to places that people weren't necessarily finding talent, uh, and they were really good at it. Brentford are like way down the tier there. Like I think the most that Brentford have paid for a player is still two to two point five million pounds. Period, uh, and that's that's like a totally different market. So you end up fishing so much more there because you need to find guys that fit your wage limits and that you can pay for, and it's a totally different thing. On the flip side, you know there are probably a lot more players that can play and improve Brentford than can play and improve Liverpool, and so it's a it's a different set of problems and, and a very different set of markets that you're operating in, and. You know, one one thing that you have, you, have, you know you can't get away from in this is manager buy-in, and Klopp seems entirely happy just to literally, you know, trust trust his recruitment team and you know be involved in that process. And of course, you know, he signed a long contract. Things have gone, you know, pretty well. They've, st- you know, it's it's interesting because you could say, oh well, they haven't won trophies, and it's like, yeah, the same thing can be leveled at Tottenham, but it is very much about like putting yourself in the right position so that when if and when things fall right, you can grab a trophy along the way. And if you don't do the kind of groundwork for that, then it's quite unlikely that you're gonna, you know, you're gonna come out on the right end and win trophies. But just, yeah, just commit, commit into it and like understanding it. And everyone seems to be on the same page. I mean, I could think of another northern club, northern giant, where everyone doesn't seem to be on the same page. I believe we touched on it last week. And um, <laughs> and yeah. The, the, then suddenly you've got everything looks rather transient and temporary and uh, you know potentially on the edge of failing. Uh, you, you don't you can't credit that at Liverpool at all. So yeah, I I, I think it's it's not just Michael Edwards who's obviously doing an excellent job, but like just the fact that the whole process has has been crystallised and uh, implemented and you know the buy-in appears to be you know across the whole club that's yeah that's, that's what you want from any club right now and, and like to you know i don't know if we want to spend too much time on this but it's like interesting to talk about because you know it's not just michael edwards right and it's not just jürgen klopp like the the guys at the top get the credit but in reality there's so many things underneath them and, and usually so many people because the world is a big place and there are so many players to scout that you know, those guys are the ones that are doing the bulk of the work, and then the final decisions, often about the process uh, and trusting who to trust and what to trust, comes down to those guys at the very top. But the reality is that it's a much bigger thing than just saying, "Does Michael Edward deserve the credit?" So, yeah, we've seen it too many times where the guy at the top moves and <laughs> cannot replicate the success from other places before. Yeah, I mean that's it. Do they? Does everyone pack up their computers and, and like, right? No, you're not seeing this. I'm going now. <laughs> but you know, yeah, I mean, in, yeah, create an institution where where you know the the you know it doesn't matter. You can plug and play people into it, and um, you know your 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 whole method is probably going to improve. Right, what are we up to next? Tammy Abraham or Dominic Solanke? Uh oh yeah we've missed one but that kind of relates back we'll to back. this as well yeah so Tammy Abraham well you you've always been quite high on Abraham and he had a solid season uh, despite things at Swansea last year seems like well he feel it feels like he's 
It's tough, isn't it? He, he feels like he's going to be set for a loan, but surely he's progressed to a level where a championship loan is is beneath him is the wrong way of putting it but if you if you catch my drift he's kind of already proven that he can be very good at this level two years ago and he's actually like if you if you credit him for being good at, at Swansea and Swansea being bad around him uh, which I think you probably should like the way that we would view those numbers say that that you should especially based on his age like he should be in the Premier League or another equivalent top league uh, you know Germany's a good one Italy would be interesting to see him play there. Spain, yeah, they, th- these are the levels of, of league that he he should potentially be at. Um, Solanke is an interesting one because like we looked at him really close. We looked at both these guys really closely at Brentford. Um, Chelsea's nearby, and we thought that we might be able to get some loans. We'd had we bought Josh McCachran, like we'd had um, I think George Savile previously. So like it was it was fairly natural for us to look at that. And Solanke had like a pretty crap year in uh, in the Netherlands. But his youth goal scoring record was obscene. Like, not just good, but obscene. Uh, Tammy physically at that time seemed to be a little bit better. And so the combination of Solanke struggling a bit in the Netherlands, knowing the championship's a tougher league, to, uh, for, especially for younger players to compete in and score in, uh, we would have leaned at the same time towards Tammy uh, over Solanke on a loan. Now, the long term of those guys, the long term upside is still very, very good for both. I would probably take Abraham, but I'm not convinced on that. And yeah, it would probably just come down to money. So I mean, Slanke had, had you know, five cameras in like 500 minutes, might be less for Liverpool last season. But in that time, like his, the stats that you were putting out looked impressive. Like you know, anyone who kind of plays a kind of centre forward role for Liverpool, they're probably going to get a few chances. So yeah, exactly. Just, and det- anyone with a pair of legs. <laughs> <laughs> detaching that's detaching that's an interesting one. He didn't follow up with goals, but. It's it's why well, is it a shame? I, I think it's, it looks like Sturridge is hanging around, which probably kind of means that Slanky's route to the first team is slightly stymied this this year. Um, They're both really young too, so like don't hmm. forget that. People are like, oh, he's he's twenty years old, he's twenty one years old, he hasn't broken through. I'm like, oh my god, yeah. this is the exact wrong way to look at this. Yeah, that's that is a fair point. You know, t- t- two years from now, we could still be in a similar situation, and you'd be like, "Well, you know, <laughs> his time is coming now." Yeah, no, it's, I think that's a natural thing with football, isn't it? You're always you're always kind of drawn towards the next young thing, the new you know new starlet, try and get him in the team, and it's like, yeah. I don't know. Look at Sterling's a classic example. He was in the team, but you know he's, he's vastly experienced, and he's still like twenty three now. Yeah, he's, he's had like five, six seasons of, of playing, and he's an outlier. You know that doesn't. Nabby's, Nabby's the same way. You're like, yeah, yeah. Twenty three. <laughs> We've known about him since he was like twenty, and yeah. I think I surprised myself the other quite recently by realizing he was twenty three. It was like bloody hell, he's been around forever. But you know, it's uh, it's it, uh, you know, it just it just shows how. How far it can you know take before you know you get your fully rounded player? Not everyone's you know hitting there. So that was sort of a championship early. question, but we have another championship <laughs> question. Well, uh, yeah. So we, we've covered Premier League so much, the championship people are pushing back against us. Um, <laughs> how successful do you think Graham Potter will be at Swansea, and are his skills transferable back to the UK? Well, I, I have, I'm not going to profess to be much of an expert on Graham Potter in general, but I think he's the kind of he's the kind of appointment that Swansea probably should have made when they were still in the Premier League, and they might possibly they might not have uh, dropped out of it. But it feels like Shackle's slightly off. Um, you know, they've been relegated. Such is life. Uh, now they're prepared to take what could be considered. 
probably at board level a small risk on him uh, uh, employing him um, I can't see why he wouldn't work out there but you know there's there's bigger things afoot for those who aren't familiar with Graham Potter, he's English manager um, and was manager at Oosterson, uh, which is way up in North Sweden. And uh, he was part of you know a management group that basically took them from the fourth Swedish league, so like really low, uh, up to the the Swedish um, Osvenskan, which is the top league, and then ended up uh, making a, a deep run or fairly deep run in the Europa League with that, that same team last year. And there was always a question of like when he was going to move. I suspect he had some pretty good offers over the course of the last year. But he's the type of guy that's you know, pretty pretty loyal to to the group that he's with, um, and and stuck around longer than than other guys might, especially with the the money that gets waived at, at managers and the gap between what you get paid at Oosterson versus you know being a, a Premier League or even a Championship manager. Um, and it's such a cool story because, like, his way of viewing things at Oosterson is very different than you would almost hear in uh, in anybody in the UK. Like, every single year, the players had a project, and it was a project uh, that usually involved some level of performance, whether it was, like, dance or um, you know, some sort of show or, or what have you, like a play type thing for the community and... It's really kind of fascinating that like he managed to create that sort of culture up there. You look at Swansea and how much they've struggled and how long they've struggled, and really kind of very dysfunctional behind the scenes is what it looks like. Not saying that they are, it's what it looks like. Um, and, and if they can give him time and some funding, which that one of those is in question, at least according to some reports, um, I think he's the type of guy that, that will succeed. Now, uh, you know, full, full disclosure, Oosterson brought me up in 2016, um, in, in May. And I, I went to, went to visit one of the biggest clubs in the world, quite literally. And then on the back of that, um, went up to Oosterson to talk to them about what we, how we view the world, what we think. Um, and, you know, the, the fact that, that those guys even asked me to come, was like fascinating, and and I, I still do this. Like when when smaller clubs want me to come talk to them, uh, I'm, I'm like, look, if you pay for my flight, like I can come give you a day of my time, and then we'll just chat because like I find it fascinating, and they always teach me things. And Oosterson taught me a lot. And a very cool stadium up there too. That's like mostly wood. And there's another guy involved here that's also British, um, kind of behind the scenes, named Kyle McCauley, and he's a He's a guy that, that basically ended up being the director of football up there at Oosterson, and I think he's also come down to, to Swansea as well. But like we looked at Swansea many times over the last couple of years, and it just looked like a huge mess that someone was going to take a while to clean up. Uh, I don't know. Like, have are they cleaning? Probably. Like, are they done? No. But it seems like they've got a manager that can get results almost despite of that. Yeah, I mean, you you have to you have to hope that. Uh uh, the Swansea board are, are looking at this as uh, a long-term solution to, like, recreate what they obviously had when they came up to the Premier League, which was, you know, a kind of a clear system and, you know, kind of faith in managers. And, you know, if 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 it's literally a case of like well, they're going to be looking at the league table, and if they're not in the top six, then oh, he's under pressure. Then, I mean, that's football, but also that would be not the best way of approaching this. So. You know, I, I hope he gets some time, and uh, it's a long-term kind of vision to, you know, 
uh, employ someone who who could actually kind of affect the whole structure of, of um, you know coaching and management in the club um, because otherwise they're probably destined to just kind of like bounce around in the cha- championship for a while um, you know Leeds are the classic example they've been there for years um, and chopped and changed and chopped and changed with owners and managers and all these things and that and that can happen so you know you've, you've kind of got to <laughs> if you get down to the championship you've kind of got to get past the idea that you're going to come straight back and we talked about this I think last week with some, someone like Burnley and maybe Cardiff even this year who feel like they've prepared for the idea that they could end up in either league and um, you know the, the the kind of general ethos and structure of the club and you know even Brentford is a good example that it doesn't matter where they end up you know, what league they end up in they're still going to you know carry on working the same way because they know it works for them so yeah, yeah it's 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 about a little bit about philosophy, but this is the type of guy who you know can come in and change a club based off of things that we've seen elsewhere. Um, you know how that works out and and what'll how it'll work. You know we'll we'll wait and see. But I'm I'm excited. And Swansea had like a, a great toe to toe match uh, against uh, the Leeds juggernaut last night. So we'll, that was a uh, that was pretty cool too. Or this week, I think it was on Tuesday. But yeah. All right. Next question. And how can XG be applied further down the football pyramid? Would shot selection matter more or less as the goalkeepers aren't as good? Well, I think. Hmm. I think people have thought in the past that, like, uh, maybe kind of shot metrics and XG doesn't necessarily kind of pan out uh, in lower leagues. I don't know. I was looking at League One. I mean, <laughs> this is a small sample of one league. I was looking at League One last season for some work we did, and, and I put put out on the site and on Twitter and stuff. And it pretty much lined up okay in the in the large part. It was. Um, it depends on how. So, from a, a stats perspective, it depends on how the skills are distributed, right? So, if the goalkeepers were worse and the shooters were about the same level as the Premier League, then you would expect to see more goals. But if everyone is equally worse down down the the distribution path, then you would expect it to see like basically how it works out. Now you might get more variance because there might be more clangers, like things that are just mistakes. Um, but I think that that's probably pretty right and what we're seeing right now. Now that said, it's fairly early on, and we're doing some cool work in women's football as well that we don't think will line up as as precisely as the men's side, and we exclude it from from XG models. But that's the type of thing that, that we don't know yet, and and it'll be interesting to see to see what happens over the the next year as we collect more data and are able to to better determine that. And the thing is, you still it's not like it's not like it's a, a binary case of insight or no insight. <laughs> Even if your your XG table is is struggling to line up with the the real table for for some reason. Um, you still, it's not, it's not like you get zero insight from all this information that you derive. You get tons. So, well, yeah. Uh, and know. one of the things that drives me nuts about, um, I don't want to say drives me nuts, but frustrates me about other other modeling, like people who are involved and who are quite bright in, in analytics uh, on the football side, is that they'll often like settle on a league and then they'll build models that are fairly complicated models on that league. And not on other leagues, but on that league. And if you are building a model for just one league, you're doing it wrong, like for lots of reasons. But like football is a sport that has many different in- incarnations and different ways that, that teams defend or attack or age curves across here or there or whatever. And you need to kind of model football 
not model football in that particular league. Um, so this is the type of thing that we're talking about where, you know, we kind of want to model football across all of the spectrum, like both women's and men's, two different sports possibly, but then all the way down the quality ladder. And so our stuff, you know, hopefully operates on, on a very broad spectrum. If you're just modeling one league, you're probably also overfit as well because, you know, you, you've created things and add a bunch of factors in that might sort of improve your particular model in that league. But it doesn't necessarily prove everything across the board. You wouldn't know that because you haven't seen the other places. So it's one thing that I think you know, new modelers and people that are doing this uh, independently just have to be a little careful about how you apply this type of stuff because you are modeling the sport itself. You're not modeling this tiny subsection of the sport. I guess yeah, the automatic kind of correlations you get you get because most leagues have got like top leagues, especially have got like a handful of. Uh, like very strong teams so like you know your 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 xy chart will always like plonk them in the top right hand corner and everyone well, else yeah. towards the left <laughs> except like, except for okay. when chelsea except for when chelsea had a really terrible season and then all, <laughs> all of a sudden you're like oh well that's variance most leagues in the world have like some level of parity um and some are much more significant than other ones and you you have to take that into account too so but obviously there's always going to be a monetary distribution one way or another right next question i like this question and then I, I like this question. I'm not sure what my answer is, but we'll go for it anyway. Yeah, if, you, you said you liked it earlier, and I'm like, <laughs> I, I'm confused, so I'll let you take me. <laughs> if you could have access to a database that contains the quantitative data for one statistic, e.g. XG or whatever, uh, for all players, teams, competitions in the world, what statistic would you choose? So, I thought, well, basically, because... Um, well, we've got quite a lot of data within the company, haven't we, Chad? So um, it was a question of, like, what else? What else? And, hmm, yeah, I, something, <laughs> something, to do, something to do with, like, uh, like probably the much derided, uh, like, distance or sprints or something. Purely, purely, and I say purely, because, um, like, that isn't quite so accessible. So it would be quite nice to kind of have a play with that and... Um, so high intensity sprints. Yeah, go on then, because everyone that's, seems to. That's they, the one they that always, we think that we has they the always most seem to want to keep hold of that. That's the one that is like, oh yeah, there's distance stats out, but the high intensity sprints are, are hidden away. So yeah, not because I have some particular love for high intensity sprints as a potential useful metric. I'm sure it would be, but um, I just like to have a poke at it really and see see what came out of it. Anyway, that was my answer for that. I'm gonna leave you to that one. I don't have any any better useful answers for you. So no, <laughs> you don't want to don't want to use statistics. We'll build we'll build some for you. Don't. Worry. I'm not smart enough to answer that question. That's the answer. <laughs> not am I really? But there we go. <laughs> right next. This is more. This is you. This is a you question. Obviously, what are the three most common misconceptions? Well, you don't have to do three. Any is fine. Uh, that directors, managers, club owners have when they talk to you and your team about analytics. This ties back into the earlier thing where we were talking about how we do this professionally as well as we produce a podcast and produce stuff on our site. Um, and I, we do that because I think it's good to get our stuff out into the world. It's good to give new people a chance to give them access to the data to let them um, you know, explore a bit, but also you know, hope, hopefully, as it has been historically at SASMOM, people will get hired from, from the work that they produce for us. Um, this is also an area where like, we don't generally talk about it. And I'm going to go right back to that and say, you don't see us talking very much about our customers. We hopefully will talk about one or two coming up. Um, and sometimes our customers talk about us. But we tend to be pretty private about it because like, as 
a bit in my my piece today, which I think we'll we'll skip to uh, in a second. When people find out you're doing a particular behavior, like, it changes their perception of that behavior's value. So today's piece I wrote about set pieces and Denmark, <clears throat> and I I think it's a great piece. Um, at least from my own work, uh, it's, it's one of those ones that, that should be evergreen and people can come back to. Um, but it was like fascinating. It was so compelling, this new data, that I had to go back to it and I had to write about it because like, I hadn't seen it before and I was really excited. So Michelin's 1415 uh, produced a set-piece program. We scored a bunch of set-piece goals. Very little of that probably goes, very little of that credit would go towards me, deservingly so. Um, you know, it goes to the coaches and the people who are executing on the ground and Brian Priska and, and all those guys who bought in. Um, but, you know, we produced this thing that, that hopefully broke down how to be more successful at set pieces. And then, weirdly enough, we started to talk about it, which is like a criminal thing to do if you're inside of sports analytics at a club. Like, never talk about your edges. Never talk about your edges. Don't talk to who you're talking about, anything like that. Um, so the, it ties back into the, the question in that way. But the coolest thing about it was that because it got talked about and because people you know, were explicitly told that this was something that we focused on, they then had the opportunity to start paying attention and adapt it themselves and, and bring it on board and whatever. And, and the funkiest thing happened where the, the year that Michelin won the title, they scored 25 set-piece goals and the next closest team had 11, uh, which is pretty major. And then this last year, Michelin had 25 set-piece goals, and the next closest team had 24. And I think the next one after that had 20, and then a bunch at 14 and 13, like all down the line. 11 of 14 teams were suddenly in double digits. Um, now, there were more games, but you know the scoring rate still definitely went up. And it's this fascinating thing where you give people the opportunity to, to know that this is a big deal. You give them some time to copy it, to study you, to see what you do. And, and what happens? And, and now we kind of have an example of this. It's, it's an amazing kind of economic little ecosystem that you can study and, and look at. And we wouldn't have it if we didn't have data on it. We wouldn't know about it. I should add, uh, 25 goals uh, in a season for set pieces is is, is very high. Uh, it's stupidly I, large. Stupidly <laughs> large. <laughs> I think I found, because I, I, I uh, you know, had a little bit of a chat around the place about this. And uh, I had a look, and I think Atletico... 14 15 was it i think they scored 30 or something like that so and that was that was the highest i could find so you know this is you know it's not just like oh yeah you know midland you know scored quite a few set piece goals they scored a hell of a lot of set piece goals compared to any league like you can look at so yeah and that was in yeah. 33 games so <laughs> right <laughs> the first season was 33 i think this last season because denmark they sort of shuffled everything around it was like 25 and 36 or something like that but um yeah so like set piece goals massive and the other cool thing that we found about it and i'm, I'm talking about because like i'm it's just fun right it's, it's neat to look back on some of your own work and then how other everybody else took off on it it's it's the difference between like wanting to do things for research and science and wanting to do it for like competitive purposes and i didn't have a choice about whether to hold on to this information so like it got out there i was like all right well we'll talk about it and then you know we'll we'll talk about some expertise um but it's, it's fascinating to see how that has taken off and 
one of the things I used to argue about with Merrick, who longtime collaborator and was at uh, Mitchelland and, and Brentford with me, was whether set pieces took away from your scoring or your preparation in, in other places. And my argument was always that like it's a separate phase. It's like a complete dead ball phase. So it shouldn't, unless like you know, there's a huge impact from taking away 10 or 15 minutes every single training session to, to work on this. And what we see here is that goal scoring across the board has gone up. Um, and and what's interesting is is like it doesn't seem to cannibalize goal scoring at all. I mean, you could argue that it cannibalizes defenses, but I I have some some discussion about that inside the piece too. Um, what did you think of it? Because you come from this, you weren't with me in that place, and like you know, you you might be more skeptical about it than than I am. And I'm I'm open to these things because yeah, I don't know what to conclude. It's it's a very cautious piece in a lot of ways, despite the headline. Yeah, I think intrinsically, I'm a little bit cautious about um about like. The fact, the idea that it doesn't cannibalise um, like anything else, just because I, I don't know, I feel, I feel it must to some degree. But then that's that's not to deride at all the idea that um, that you know you shouldn't actually devote more resources uh, that way. We've we've seen over the years teams that have focused evidently focused on set pieces, like you know eke out more more from their game than than others. And if you're I don't know if you're a professional football club, why wouldn't you like try and do the absolute most in all aspects of your game. You know, you should be turning up on a sat on a Saturday afternoon, knowing every single possible you know scenario that could come up in a game, that you're 100% prepared for it, and you've got smart ideas that you think are smarter than the opposition. And set pieces is an obvious kind of area that you you know you should you should use as part as your part of your armory. You know, every team's gonna have corners, even if you even if you don't focus on set pieces. You know, you, you need to make decisions on whether you're gonna take short corners, whether you're gonna launch it into the box, whether you're in swingers or out swingers. You know, you can study all of these things. Attacking and, versus defending. Like how do yeah, you yeah. how do you think they're gonna set up? How do you how do you nullify some of their weapons? Um and, and yeah, it's like I kind of I flagged up the Premier League thing where where basically like they've scored effectively the same amount of goals in fourteen fifteen and seventeen eighteen so it doesn't look like they've moved that much but you know that's that's not to say that people don't do a lot of work on these things already I'm sure yeah, mo- some, you know, some most, do. most people do or some <laughs> some people do even but like I say there's there's always room to to do a little bit more or you know set set another guy in your team like to do a kind of longer term research project to like understand a little bit more about how these work or or how other teams do it you know there's there's, there's endless research and that's where stats come in as a as a great helper you know like i've just said one team has got tons of set piece goals like atletico 14 15 what did they do you know go and have a look at them <laughs> find out what was going on there you know they it probably they probably deployed some new new system that um that you know got them a few goals that may have been works out since but um, there's ideas everywhere you know there's a whole world of football yeah it's almost an engineering project in a lot of ways like we talk about it being a science project but it's less about science it's more about engineering so you produce like version one and then you figure out you know what's good what's bad and then you strip it down and you you iterate it and you improve it and you do that again and again and, and hopefully at some point you end up with something really quite good despite the fact that you're in a competitive place where everyone is competing against you to try and limit your ability to do these type of things so I don't know I, that's, that's enough of us blathering on about that but I, I I was really excited by this information and so I wrote this piece which I haven't had much time to do lately and it's on the site so you should go totally read it very exciting. Yeah. No problem. Right. Well, we've got, only got a couple, quite, couple of questions left. Goal assist bonuses. Uh, Should yeah. we defer this one to Ian Lynham? Go, go read Ian Lynham's work on it. 
our individual goal assist bonus is a bad thing. It might encourage Andros Townsend shots, but it could could team bonuses encourage social loafing? Are we sure Ian Lynham hasn't asked this question under a pseudonym? <laughs> it's very very targeted towards his work on his work on. It involves his Andros and <laughs> goal bonuses. <laughs> yeah. So um. So Ian Lyons a, a lawyer that works in and with Premier League um, clubs, and he had a great talk at Sloan a couple of years ago about bad bonus ideas. And it's also a, an, an economist type question where, like, you want to incentivize certain behavior that you want people to engage in, and you don't want to incentivize other behavior. So, like, a goal bonus is behavior that you don't want to incentivize because you don't actually care which individual scores it; you care that the team scored it. And the same yeah. thing for assists, right? Like, if a guy's in a good shooting position, but he gets an extra ten thousand if he if he creates an assist, that's also a problem. So you need to find ways to collectively incentivize your team so that they will root each other on. And oh and man, I've just sort of horrible like arguments about assist bonuses. It's just going to float through my head. You know, a cross comes in, he gets the tiniest deflection off the defender, and then he gets headed home and. <laughs> It's like no, it's not an assist because it deflects. <laughs> like, give me my money, you swine! You know, <laughs> rouse in the in the changing room about. This would absolutely oh. happen, a hundred percent. I promise you. <laughs> yeah, so that's not a good way of incentivizing <laughs> things because already we found a, a huge problem. Defi- definitions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, like the the data collection has to be perfect. <laughs> anything that could be you know, defined or misdefined or whatever it is 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 a bad incentivization program. Yeah, it's not not a, sub- a subject I thought about a lot um, as to what would be the best way of doing it. But yeah, def- definitely like individual outcomes. You know, you don't want to have you know guys shooting from forty yards on the off chance because they've got I don't know gambling debts to pay off or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and if you want more information on this, we're gonna we're gonna shoo you towards Ian's work, which is also really good. We've got like one more question. Yeah. What are some actionable takeaways from your research you can give away that coaches at all levels would find value for in their teams? A tweet of yours mentioned in swinging corners and significantly more effective than outswingers, for example. This is aimed at you, Ted. Um. <laughs> well, I mean, you've talked about it too. Uh, <laughs> like, just use. Execute the research. Like, execute the stuff that's public out there. You know, I've produced what I think is actually quite a lot of information on set pieces over the years. And people are like, oh, well, you know, can you be really specific about this or that? I'm like, look, I could, but it's not really the point. Like, you know, one, we hopefully will do this for money off and on. Uh, and But two, you know, what is appropriate to the teams that I've worked with is not going to be appropriate to everybody else. You have to adapt this type of stuff. Um, in-swingers versus out-swingers, like, that's not just my work. That's, that's Paul Power and Stats have produced the exact same thing. Like, if you're trying to score goals, one of these is, like, really useful and effective, and the other one's not. Um, I, I did the, the orbital mechanics um, analogy on Twitter, I think, last week, and, <laughs> and why in-swingers are way more effective. Um, but, like, that's, that's, like, a really niche thing. The, the most basic stuff is, you know, better shot locations, crossing is hard. Like, all the stuff that you pull out of a, an expected goals model is really useful. And just execute the public research that is smart, and you, across almost any league, and even at the top levels, will probably see a significant uptick in, in your results. Yeah, I mean, time is always a factor for people um, in you know, club work, and we know people work incredibly hard with small, tight schedules and... You know, may may feel like they haven't got much time to do things, but you know, you can always like 
start a project like on in whatever spare time you've got and uh and you know think of it as a long-term thing and think of it as just improving your you know your your general skills towards towards that end um I don't want yeah. to be Kyle Body here and, and be like, you know, really sort of harsh on people that don't want to do the work. But like the, a lot of the work is out there now. There's a lot of good material that, that people aren't using. I talked in the, in the piece today about like clubs not even talking to us about set pieces, despite all the stuff going on this summer and, and being easy to find. Um, and, but this research is out there, too. Like you have to read it. No one's going to do it for you unless you hire them and pay them you know, large amounts of money to be inside of your club. There's plenty of research out there. There are lots of good people that you can ask that are not me uh, <laughs> about where to find this stuff and and how to how to read it and you know start talking to smart people about it too. Maybe start up like you know a local reading group where you take good research and and you discuss the ideas and sometimes you go and you test it. Like I know for a fact that a number of coaches have taken our stuff and used them now in like UEFA Pro licenses as part of like. Uh, a whole experiment and how do I train and teach my team better and that's the type of attitude you need to have find the research it's not that hard ask smart people their opinions experiment come back to it come to new conclusions and like do the work I'll say I'll say something I meant to meant to say that something I spotted recently I don't know how I didn't see it before but Michael Lopez who's um, now the director of analytics for the NFL so you know this is a guy who knows his stuff and uh, he ran a uh, a module on sports analytics and all he's on twitter and at stats boy lopez and he retweeted out this all the all the um all the content from this uh module the other day and i looked at it and it's amazing it's like just how to do sports analytics uh, uh, you know a whole university module and all the information's there so he's, we, he's we super get, <laughs> we get asked this stuff all the time like oh where do i start what should i do literally go on track down that module and just spend time um but, you know, it would take eight, it take ages, a long module. But it gives you, you know, a load of methodology, a load of techniques. Uh, most of it's based in R, which I like because I use R. Um, yeah, if you want to learn how to do some some sports analytics, then that, that's a really good resource out there that you can spend time with. If you and like. so much stuff from other sports is applicable to to soccer or to mm. other sports. Like it's it's applicable from one sport to another. And if you don't believe me, like you need to understand that. The, the guys who developed like the crazy high pressing system that's German spent a lot of time talking to field hockey uh, coaches. And Pep Guardiola has somebody on his staff that I believe is a, a world champion in water polo. So like these people at the very highest levels value other sport expertise in a way that you almost might not expect. And it's because they have a different perspective and they learn things from other sports. And if you think that you've mined a lot from your sport and can't take much away from it, then where else do you go when people will talk to you? Like you go to other sports and there are tons and tons and tons of smart people out there that have some level of cross-sport expertise and it's hugely useful. So yeah, that's... In particular, yeah, American sports has got such an established, um, you know, analytics heritage that, yeah... You know, if, if let's say you're a little bit interested in NBA, but you're really interested in football, go and have a look at some NBA analytics and then try and translate some ideas. Because, yeah, there's there's, there's so much there is so much out there nowadays, and you know, a lot, a lot of work's been done. We're still, well, I wouldn't say we're still new in football analytics, but um, you know, we're not quite as far down the road as some other sports too. So, you know, we're we're not we're not baseball. Um, no. I was talking, I think, on a on a podcast with uh, Nicola McCarthy or something like that um, earlier this week 
about the lineage that basketball has too. And basketball really started in the early 2000s. They talk about like being on on message boards or um, even Usenet groups. Um, and then you get like the the big uptick in hiring in like 2005. And some really smart guys got hired them, including like Maury. Um, and they stayed in, in basketball and they, they still have like big positions. And uh, so, yeah, I expect football will go that way to some extent, but it hasn't switched over yet outside of a couple of places. And we still aren't seeing most of those guys able to make the, the strong decisions to just change how an organization works like you would see happen in basketball. It'll come at some point, I think. And, and the general managers or directors of football will start to have like that level of power and possibly name recognition. But it certainly isn't happening now. Right, Ted, I've got to go. Do you know what? Yeah. Do you know why? Because you blew up my inbox yesterday. And Sorry about that. <laughs> i got to go too. So thank you, everybody else, for listening and asking us questions. And once again, tell your friends how much you love us or not. You can tell us how much you hate us, and people will hate listen to you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, have a good day. Bye, James. All right. Bye.